Shit Platypus Says, episode 46. Hello and welcome to another episode of Shit Platypus Says, the commentary on the commentary on the left. My name is Pamela Nogales, I am one of your hosts. This episode comes in two parts. In the first part, I sit down with member Tana Forrester to discuss the recent Supreme Court leak on the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We talk about the responses by the left, both online, on the so-called left book by the Marxist humanist Mike Dola, as well as responses by the Socialist Workers Party Oregon, their newspaper, The Militant. We talk about what it means to defend bourgeois right absent of a independent working class movement and a socialist party. Did we mention that we uh, welcome responses to our segments you can reach us at shitplatypus says at gmail.com or you can write us a note on our facebook group or on instagram on the second half of the podcast rebecca and lisa sit down with our members clay from chicago and lucas from frankfurt as well as a fellow traveler who attended the convention conrad from portland to reflect on the 14th annual platypus international convention 2022 we will include the recording of all of the panels from the convention in the episode description these include the legacy of the 1980s marxism and liberalism what is leadership for the left biden COVID, and the left and finally what is marxism for as with all of our conventions you will see edited transcriptions of some of these panels in our monthly publication the platypus review and we also welcome responses to those panels in submissions to the platypus review you can learn more about the platypus affiliated society by visiting us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. As always, if you like the podcast, share it and write us a review. All right, stay tuned. Hey, Tan. Hi, Pam. Hi. So, <laughs> Dave Chappelle got uh, attacked. Did you see that recently? I, I saw it, but I was like, I, I just started getting these headlines. And then I didn't want to click. I didn't want to like. You didn't want to see it? You know, or like watch it because I don't know that it just like looked kind of gruesome. And then I kept seeing these additional headlines that were like maybe a little bit fake news that were just like Buster Rhymes like beat up Dave Chappelle's attacker and then Jamie Foxx and yeah like, and Chris Yasha Rock showed up Chris Rock showed up on down. stage he was like was that Will Smith I feel like he was just yeah. holding on to that line for a while <laughs> he got well, redemption that's the perfect 
opportunity. I mean, like if he was holding on to that, like, I mean, there's no better opportunity than like literally when Dave Chappelle gets attacked by a random person and you're in the audience. Yeah. The dude had a knife. I, I did also see that. You see how much information a person can, I I know the whole story without ever clicking on, on anything. Okay, for those out there who are not wise to this, the dude had what looked like a gun. It was a fake gun. It was not a real gun, but it was a knife. And he like rushed on stage. And then apparently like everyone became Dave Chappelle's savior. Buster Rhymes, Chris Rock, Jamie Foxx, like all all held back the attacker. And like Dave was fine. He finished his set. Then I also saw a headline this morning that said something about Jon Stewart. And I what happened to Jon Stewart? Stewart? But he's also in the mix uh, of the of, <laughs> of the defenders of Dave Chappelle. But then I also saw an additional headline that was like, <laughs> "All of this actually like never happened. Like those people oh. didn't, didn't like." So who really knows? But the important thing is that you know we're talking about Dave Chappelle. Comedians need to watch out. It's coming. Like Will Smith has just opened the floodgates. Everybody needs to watch <laughs> out. Like, I don't know. If- it's kind of hilarious because it's like that whole like emboldening line that uh, people used to say all the time. Like when Trump was in office, it's like <laughs> he's emboldened people. And now oh. it's like weirdly flipped to to Will Smith. It's like yeah. Will Smith has emboldened yeah, the this- people in an audience that would attack a comedian. It's like that's right. Hey. I, I'm like, I don't really know. It's, people's mental health is definitely. Uh, oh, yeah. Not, and like, if you were already pretty not, things have not gotten better for you. So, yeah, maybe comedians should watch out, but I don't think it's really because Will Smith emboldened them. But like, you know, who's to say, really? I, I don't know what's going I on. I think you're letting, letting him off easy. Um, obviously, we did not have Tana Forrester on the podcast just to chat with us about Dave Chappelle, although I could talk about this for uh, all day. But we have brought her on um, because recently, as we've learned, the Supreme Court has voted to strike down the landmark Roe versus Wade decision of 1973, um, according at least to an initial draft majority opinion, which was written back in February by Justice Alito. Um, was circulated inside the court, but recently obtained by Politico. So this is a leak draft opinion. It's possible that things would change, but at least it shows a repudiation of the 1973 decision, which guaranteed federal constitutional protections of abortion rights. Um, So I found the left's response to this um, to be a bit puzzling, I saw that you got into, how shall we say, a little bit of a spat, a little spat with a Marxist humanist uh, comrade uh, who seemed to suggest that this was all due to Trump. And that was initially confusing, uh, given that the Democrats have had plenty of opportunity to codify Roe v. Wade, it seems, and then they did not. Yeah, I guess I'll I'll just kind of open it up even more broadly. And I would just underscore that when when it comes to, you know, abortion rights and abortion restrictions in the United States, I've always found it frustrating when um, people try to just use the terrible state of affairs in places like Mississippi, where there is only one abortion clinic for, uh, you know, the entire state and and people, 
have a 24 hour waiting period. So like if a person wanted an abortion, you know, she would have to go all the way to this one abortion clinic that exists for the whole state and, you know, check in with the doctor, wait 24 hours and then come back to get her, her abortion. And then also the abortion, like like the lowest cost abortion there is $600 for an in-office abortion. And, you know, meanwhile, the federal minimum wage, uh, in the federal minimum wage is 725 and Mississippi doesn't have its own minimum wage that's above that. So that means that the minimum wage in Mississippi is $7 and 25 cents an hour. That means that people are, would have to, someone making very little money would have to come up with $600 to get an abortion at this one clinic. Um, it's just that situation has been going on for a very long time. Well, before Trump, I was in Mississippi, like in it must have been like 2012 or something like that. This was like going on when I was down there. And I know it was going on before then. The impulse to always either like put everything to now put anything, you know, bad that happens on Trump is it's frustrating because it's just obviously untrue. And it also like sticks us in this situation where we're just like, you know, taking up these positions that are both it's like factually untrue that like the situation in Mississippi was caused by Trump, which is like not really what this this Marxist humanist was saying. He was more saying like abortion restrictions and the striking down of Roe v. Wade is why it was like we could never support. Republicans. I don't know. It was kind of like convoluted. he was saying he was talking about Dobbs versus Jackson, the 2018 case that was presented under Trump and was pointing to the appointment of Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court and was basically saying like this problem within the Supreme Court was in part caused by the Trump administration. I thought that there was a bit of losing the forest for the trees because one of the things that he didn't seem to wrap his mind around was the inability to act on your constitutional rights, even if you did have them in places like Mississippi. So you wouldn't be able to actually get an abortion. And his response to that was, well, having the right is better than not having the right. And he turned it back around. Yeah, there's something is better than nothing argument, which I I also find infuriating because that that happens a lot um with people when they they get into this when they have to account for the fact that they are supporting the democratic party they get into this like well um you know something's better than nothing and like you know the democrats obviously are the lesser of two evils and then he 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 was like i acknowledge everything that you're saying about Mm -hmm. the situation in Mississippi regarding abortion rights, that it's extremely expensive, that, you know, there's a 24-hour waiting period, that you would have to come up with someone to watch your other kids, you would have to call out of work, and Mississippi calling out of work, it's like, you don't have protected sick days, there's, there's all of these restrictions that are in place that make it, like, functionally impossible for someone to exercise this, like, right that's being protected by um, you know, row in, in Mississippi. So just the simple fact that, you know, I guess you have 
access to abortion in Mississippi, if a person couldn't actually access it, then then it isn't a right that someone has. And that's like a really simple point that everybody should agree with. Yeah. Like I can't I can't imagine actually sitting there and and thinking about it and putting yourself in the shoes of, you know, a working class woman in one of these states where there's like one abortion clinic that's hours and hours and hours away from you and you have to pay for you pay for an abortion like i can't imagine a person not understanding that you actually don't do not have the right to to go yeah. get that abortion. to be fair to mike uh he wrote Droning on about neoliberal technocracy being worse than the proto-fascism of those ensconcing federalist society and judgeships on every level is not helping the working class. Bourgeois democracy, he writes, is better than authoritarianism. Not sure what politics are advanced by making a hash called the complicity of all sides without distinction. Um, part of this sort of ended up just Supporting Democrats, even though several of them have supported the Hyde Amendment, which prevents federal funds from being used to pay for abortions. Biden himself supported it. He, in the past at least, has supporting letting states overturn Roe. He doesn't, I just, I think that there is a, a strange math that happens when people end up presenting the Republicans as being the ultimate obstacle to working class politics it's it's all very confused well i think that one of the main obstacles is that we're stuck talking and and discussing you know these issues in these terms so it's like if it just ends up being you know the right the right to choose versus like abortion is murder like you're never going to actually be able to talk about the politics necessary to advance the freedom to have a family, like the freedom to, you know, have control over your time, the freedom to have bodily autonomy, like all of that stuff is like a much broader conversation that's actually way more appealing to people. And instead yeah. we're just stuck in this like endless loop that only benefits, it only benefits like the ruling class with, you know, the rest of us out there in the world who are, you know, trying to, who, who both care about people having access to both contraception and also don't believe that there should be any ban on abortion that that people if someone wants an abortion they they should be able to get it but also at the same time in that same realm we also believe that people also should have the right to have a family and to you know have control over their time have control over their health care not be completely shackled by fear when it comes to the idea of creating a family, having children and, and raising them. Abortion isn't the issue. It's reproduction in general is the issue or the, you know. Yeah. The militant article says the following. Opponents of women's second class status need a fundamentally different starting point. Our fight is an integral part of battles by working people against efforts by the employing class to place the burden of the crisis of their system on our backs. Um, and so that's, I mean, the different starting point, right, in, in terms of not talking about the same thing, not talking about what the Democrats want versus the, the Republican Party wants, um, seems to be the proposal by by the militant. Yeah, I mean, it's, that proposal makes a, a lot of sense to me, although at the same time, it's like, 
you know, how, how do you get there and how do you have people understand that that's what you're doing when you mm-hmm. criticize the current Democratic Party talking points. And I think that it's important to be, you know, really deliberate when you when you do that, because it's it's very easy for even a sympathetic listener to to think that you're automatically saying like, oh, this doesn't matter to come off kind of, I guess, in their eyes, callous or something like you, you don't you don't care about the 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 struggles of of these women who you know need need an abortion and can't get them and that's I think that we need to be very clear that no of course there's consideration for people's dire circumstances but it also must be pointed out that these dire circumstances are like ongoing and uh, they only really become like a an issue for the Democrats when they want when the elections are coming when the elections are are here yeah let's be real let's be real yeah and it's only about this one issue it's like it's fine with them by them i mean the democrats i mean and the republicans but you know it's fine with all of these politicians and all of these elected leaders people are like you know working whatever like 50 hours a week at two jobs um you know and because they're doing that they're not even entitled to any overtime and, you know, you know, just like busting their ass and are not even entitled to regular health care, let alone like we're not even talking about abortions, like people can't even like go to the, you know, the doctor. Like they don't give, obviously don't give a shit about that. And it's not even about like feelings. It's about, it's not a political priority. Let's put it that way. Like these people's lives like, yeah, they, they're not. A, they're, they're not a political. They're not a priority. Like, I think we have to be able to say that, right? Meaning, like, in terms of coming off as callous, I think that one thing that needs to be said is that this issue is being politically instrumentalized in the lead up to the election, and so the opportunism has to be called out. Yeah, it does, but it's like it is. It is um, tough <laughs> to, to to do that. Um, and I've had, you know, sometimes I have more luck than, than other times. It's just, to me, it's like, there's an obvious common sense politics, a common sense socialist politics that we should be able to be discussing, but that we can't because, you know, the dead left situation. Um, but it's, it's just so obvious that this debate over abortion needs to be placed in a much larger conversation about the necessity for socialist politics. And anytime you attempt to even inject that into a conversation, a lot of times you'll receive a lot of pushback um, about how like you have these like lofty ideas and we need to, there's an emergency and like you're sitting here talking about healthcare and we're, but we're talking about like you know, women dying in in the alley or something like that. And like people- Yeah, have, but that's, that is the perverse opportunism, isn't it? No, Meaning, it, yeah, yeah. It, it is, but it's like- Like people are dying, Mary. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, people are dying. Um, it, it, how do you, I guess what I, what I, I want to do going forward and I like try to do is make people understand that I'm, I, 
it's like, I understand what they are saying and that they are concerned about this circumstance. You know, there's been so many articles recently in the New York Times or like on NPR or whatever about how doctors now in Texas are feeling like they cannot recommend an abortion that's needed to save the life of, of the mother. For example, there was a story, I, I can't, I think it was in the New York Times, and it was about this woman who something happened with her pregnancy and she was like very far along in it. And she, it, it like hit like all these like really just like, you know, sad notes where it's like, she's getting ready to get married. And she realizes that she's going into labor like extremely early. And then she has to go to the hospital. And at the hospital, they realize that the, like the baby, uh, there's something wrong. And like, typically what they would advise is that she get and she get an abortion immediately and terminate the pregnancy. But because of the, the ban in Texas, the doctors felt as if they couldn't say that, even though there was something in the law that made it as if they, they could say it, but they, the doctors were still like too scared to do it. And so they're describing in this article, the doctors are like typing on their phones and showing the patient, like you need to get on a plane or you need to like drive to go to a different state to get this abortion to save your life. You read a story like that and you're like, holy shit, it's so terrible and so and, and terrifying. And then at the same time, you know, all of these stories are just, you know, you're being inundated with them right now yeah. because they're trying to galvanize you to just again realize that it's just the, the you know, the Democratic Party is this, you know, bulwark against yeah, that only voting can save your abortion rights, right? Only voting can save you. Yeah, it's all like there's all these other issues that are just like never addressed. But it's very, very hard to take in that information and then try to remain, try to remain like clear eyed, especially if someone wants to discuss that with you. And then you are like, yes, that is horrible. But that doesn't mean that you have to <laughs> support the lesser the evil. I mean, I think I just, I just want to say that taking the issue seriously, right, should make you more infuriated as a leftist who thinks that there should be an independent working class movement in the United States and there should be a socialist party. It should make you more infuriated to see how the ruling class parties treat this issue to instrumentalize and to campaign for their own power. So, no, I, yeah, I agree. You know? Yeah, it's the same thing with the It's like, if you recall, um, the issue used to be, the horrible issue was the kids in cages issue. And the, that, like, the, the horrible treatment of, like, you know, children immigrating to the United States with or without their parents and the conditions that they were, they were being kept in and then when it was revealed that like who built the cages, Joe? Yeah, uh, yeah, like also some of the pictures that were used were like not under Trump. They were actually like mm -hmm. they were pictures that were taken under Obama, and like turns out like the deporter in chief, the, the whole immigration system is horrible under both the Democrats and yeah. the Republicans. Anyways, like because the fear like, that cudgel yeah. of fear of death is what stops people from thinking about what the politics play are right but then it's like the only time it gets admitted then it's like it it's 
you can bring up like while it's going on that this is what's happening and this is what they are doing to you. And this is what they're doing to all of us constantly, like keeping us in this constant state of, you know, fear, like this manic, like fear, and you've got to do something. And actually the thing just so happens that there's something that you can do. Yeah. It just so happens. It's just so easy. You can vote and you can give them money. Yeah. It's, and then, you know, then you're doing something. Uh, and then, you know, whatever, after the elections, maybe there'll be like a year will go by and then there'll be a bunch of articles about something and it will, it will just show that, you know, even the madness and the badness all still goes on and just, yeah, uh, we'll, uh, Leave our listeners with a quote from uh, Alexandra Kollontai from 1921, talking about the emancipation of women. We will link this text in the episode description. She says, the emancipation of women can only be completed when a fundamental transformation of living is affected and lifestyles will change only when the fundamental transformation of all production and the establishment of a communist economy is established. And so uh, this was from 1921, and I guess the task still continues. And insofar as we're just debating on the Democratic Party policies or Republican policies, we're falling below that threshold. So uh, thank you, Tana, for coming on and talking to us about this serious and difficult subject. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. Follow Shit Platypus Says on Instagram at Shit Platypus Says and on Twitter at Platypus Says. You can hear the podcast on SoundCloud as well as on Apple Podcasts where you can leave a review. But we are also on Spotify. We will link all three in the episode description. If you're in the Chicago area this Thursday, May 19th, Platypus is hosting a public discussion on the anti-war movement, past and present. The panel will take place at the University of Chicago in Hyde Park in Kent, room 120. We will link the Facebook invite in the episode description. We ask, how has the left organized opposition to war historically? How is this distinguished from conservative or right-wing opposition to the war, and what was the significance of the new left Vietnam anti-war movement for millennials, and what is its significance today? The panel features Andy Thayer, who's a co-founder of the Chicago Coalition Against War and Racism in the Gay Liberation Network, Josh, an activist and ex-member of Tribune of the People, a Marxist-Leninist Maoist Revolutionary News Service, as well as our own Gabe Gaster, who was an activist during the Iraq anti-war movement. Okay, enjoy the second part of the podcast.
Hi guys, how are you doing? So we are here with Clay, Lucas and with Conrad to discuss the convention in Chicago. So please introduce yourself. I'm Clay. I'm a member of the Chicago, uh, of like Chicago Platypus. I'm the pedagogue at SAIC and I uh, filmed the convention. I'm Conrad. I'm not a member of Platypus. I'm a former member of DSA and a former member of Class Unity. And I attended the convention. It was the first one I'd ever gone to. So yeah, I guess I'm here to reflect on that. I'm Lucas. I'm a member of Platypus in Frankfurt in Germany. And uh, I attended also the convention. It was not just my first convention. It was also my first time in the United States. So I guess that was also an experience. The convention theme for this year was the ends of liberalism and Marxism. For most of us, it was like our first in-person convention. What was it like being being with like Platypus people from all over the world um, in Chicago for our first kind of in-life convention since the pandemic? People are shorter than I imagine them when I see them on Zoom. In my mind, basically everyone is 6'3", <laughs> and it turns out that people in real life are not that height. We're not going to name names. <laughs> <laughs> Clay, what, were, what was the vibe like? I think as, as the videographer for, for the weekend, overall vibe? I had like a really positive experience during like the convention in person. I mean, it, it made it feel, I, I said this and a lot of other people I was talking to said this, it made Platypus as a project feel a lot more like tangible and real. Um, comparative over Zoom, where it's just like I'm talking to a bunch of fake people and it doesn't matter. Actually doing it in person, it actually gave a lot more presence, I guess, to the project. Um, but also it just, I think that also had to do with the, this particular convention as well, uh, the actual moment that we're in and how people are relating to Platypus as a project that we invite onto panels, uh, because there's this level of like admitting it's like, okay, I'll buy the millennial left is dead. And we'll talk about that sort of on like your panels. Uh, I have something, even though it's just a not very serious thing, rather, uh, you know, an absurdity at this convention was of course, uh, and I think Lisa had a similar experience that because the German membership has grown so much in the last two years, you could um, you you walk out of the out of a panel, you know, and outside already there's a bunch of German smoking, and so uh, that was part of the experience in the sense that it is a platypus convention, platypus members are there, and in the last two three years a lot of new members are from Germany, and this uh, very concretely reflected itself in my. Uh, convention experience. I totally agree with you, Lucas. It was so many Germans there, right? What was the panel that left the biggest impression on you? Maybe not a panel, maybe just a, a situation. I was really surprised by the, like the the Biden COVID the left panel, which I thought would be the most like innocuous and nothing of like every event that we had the entire weekend, but it ended up being kind of like the most like chaotic and like seemed like the most like present of like people's engagement with like the panelists and how the panelists were engaging with each other. 
And ironically, that kind of came about through them not talking about the subject matter they're asked to talk about at all, which led a lot of the Q&A questions to be like, okay, why are you on this panel in the first place? The fact that there was like this huge avoidance of actually talking about Biden or even more so COVID as like a phenomenon uh, really speaks to how like the left is like the past few years has been a completely avoiding talking about it or just built it up as a new taboo or left it to like the realm of like the right. To go back to something Clay said about people being willing to engage with the idea that the millennial left or the left in general is dead. One thing that, you know, was not really answered or people answered only unintentionally was maybe what they mean when they say that. Because, you know, one gets the feeling that platypus members probably do not mean the same thing as someone, you know, maybe like uh, Balthazar uh, on the on the panel on the last day talking about kind of the decline of going to DSA meetings, for example. The death of the millennial left probably means something a little bit different for both parties. And I think kind of a, a failure to think about that was notable for me. Last night, uh, me and some other people on Platypus went to an SWP meeting in Chicago and like Pilsen. And they were talking about the Roe v. Wade um, thing getting like knocked down and they were like giving their points. So I was like speaking to one of like their, they're all like pretty older people. And I was like talking to one of them after. And he said to me, it's like, you know, like we're not the left. Uh, we're embedded in the working class. And I was like, that's a, such a strange thing to say. The SWP would never have said that like, just like five, ten years ago, I think. And it's like, what do you mean saying that? We're like surrounded by all these like linen books. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's something that you're seeing in like a lot of the left. We, there's been a lot of talk about like the Benedict Crypto Fash thing lately. And then there's like this general acceptance as we saw at the convention of people to say like, yeah, the millennial left is dead, the left is dead. There's There's something in the air right now that's like very interesting. Lucas, did you want to come in on this? I think maybe you already know, but that was, of course, the first line of criticism uh, that uh, back in the day, 15 years ago or so, when Platypus was founded, the Spartakist League in their masterpiece on Platypus, an academic pro-imperialist talk shop, also said, you know, what is this talk about left and right? Uh, when it is about the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. And of course, we as the Spartacist League position ourselves there. So uh, that is uh, nothing new, so to speak. But actually, you know, I think this is a really nice segue into the broader theme of the convention, which was the Marxism and the ends of liberalism. I think just in terms of the concept of the left might push somebody to actually really consider that relationship. So take somebody like Benjamin Studebaker and Nancy Montero, you know, who were both on the liberalism and Marxism panel. And I think both of them have this kind of like anti-wokeness in their politics, both of which they attribute to too much liberalism, whether that be um, kind of like a radical liberalism or a neoliberalism. Studebaker is emphasizing woke politics comes from having to capture certain like racialized groups or individuals. Montero is more emphasizing the um, kind of like imperialism, right? So he's kind of like equating liberalism with 
imperialism or colonialism. It's liberalism that connects kind of the American expansionist or imperialist project to something like um, the 1619 project. What both of this brings up is actually what is the difference between kind of like a liberal and a leftist and then a Marxist. But what was revealed to you about our panelists' understanding between liberalism and Marxism? Like, what's the relationship? And how were they trying to work through those prompts? You've got someone like Studebaker, whom for liberalism is basically like epistemological uh, individualism, belief in like individuals and society being kind of monadic units that uh, are agglomerated together through some sort of political process versus Marxism, which for him is one among many ways of asserting kind of like the, the primacy of the collective or the, maybe the primacy of the agglomeration that the political process in liberalism produces. That's kind of one way of viewing it. And it was brought up, I think, over and over again by people who are asking questions about, you know, the relationship between society and individuals, uh, going back with, you know, like with reference to Constant and uh, other, you know, early figures in um, sort of bourgeois political thought. And the other characters, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like of, of Hartfield, for example. For him, liberalism is essentially what's left after Marxism has completely failed. After the convention, we read a little bit of his work that has been published in the Platypus Review. And, you know, I, I didn't realize it quite as much at uh, the time of the convention, but afterward, um, a little bit more so. The degree to which spiked, uh, you know, the former RCP people have kind of declared defeat for Marxism in the present. You know, I guess they don't foreclose on the possibility that it couldn't be important in the future. But it really is about uh, kind of asserting um you know, some sort of liberal bourgeois right or like civil liberties, I guess, in present society, which I guess they would uh, contrast that with maybe what they see as conservative impulses that are expressed in a Marxist way. People giving like left sounding justification for like authoritarianism, for uh, state intervention, et cetera, et cetera, against what they kind of see as the only viable goal for emancipatory politics. I have been banging my head against the wall for the last week or so after re-listening to the Marxism and liberalism panel, because I really had to find out where does Benjamin Studebaker come out in the sense of where does he get it and think that it's Marxist, you know, because I, of course, as a good, uh, how do you say, smartest, elitist platypus member, I had 10,000 bullet points on how, on how Benjamin Studebaker is wrong and not a Marxist. But then I had to think about how he actually also comes out of the Marxist tradition. And so I think where this all starts uh, is the historical approach of Marx, you know, specifying uh, 
Yeah, you know, it's it's clear in Marx's works already in his uh, like 1843 articles and also later, historicizing, specifying the notion of the individual and its rights and so on and so forth as historically specific. And that is where he takes this up and drives it in a peculiar direction, you know. After this panel, I walked, you know, to the next panel and so on, and I, when I was talking to other people, I was all the time like, all nice and fine what this Benjamin Studebaker has just said, but where does Marxism even come in? You know, like, I don't know, I'm just sh sharing my great discovery that I've made over the last week. Uh, after re-listening and really being like, damn, what has this to do with Marxism? And it has something to do with Marxism. That's the important thing. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, you do listen to Benjamin Studebaker and you're like, what? what? Yeah, what does this have to do with Marxism? But he really is like this kind of like symptom of like the failure, both of like the application of Marxism and like the millennial left and the millennial left in general. The thing is like rejection of liberalism and like, doing like a very advanced argument for like upholding one end of the antinomy between like individualism and collectivism kind of comes out in like an interesting way that we saw with like a bunch of different panelists of like people talking about small r republicanism in contrast to like liberalism like studebaker's like assertion of like we're not talking about upholding individuals we're talking about upholding citizens and you're like well isn't that liberalism maybe something that came up often during the panels something um, on the death of the millennial left and when it started um, a lot of panelists seem to be clear that the millennial left started in 2015. What do you think where this is coming from? That argument that the millennial left begins in 2015 is like very new at least as far as I know from like the last couple of years and it's kind of interesting that it comes about now and people are willing to accept either like the left is dead in quotation marks, scare quotes, or uh, that, well, there was this failure, but now we have to learn from it because we're actually in this very potent revolutionary situation, a la like Anthony Montero or uh, maybe even like Parker McQueenie on like the leadership in the left panel. But it's interesting because what that argument does in effect is place all the agency for the creation of the millennial left in the hands of the Democratic Party with like, the millennial left began in 2015 because that's when like Bernie starts running as a Democrat rather than saying the millennial left began with the like combined coalition efforts of the left and the anti-war movement or even if like Occupy when it still wasn't completely co-opted by the Democratic Party yet. So it's kind of interesting because it sort of that argument takes the actual responsibility of failure out of the hands of the left themselves and places it into the Democratic Party while also subordinating themselves to it. Yeah, and speaking of failure, I think Danny made a very good point um, in posing a question to the panelists um, and saying that there is a different notion of failure um, on stake here. So failure doesn't mean just making a little mistake, um, but failure when the Marxism of Luxembourg or Lenin uh, talk about failure, it's about a missed opportunity or missed potential. Um, so 
what I found interesting during the Biden and the left panel, Rebecca, you asked um, the panelists why they supported Bernie the loser twice. Um, and it was like, oh, did we? Or I don't know why. So they, they, they tried to, to, to pass this question on the, on the support of Bernie in 2020. And it seems like they all wanted to tell us that they learned a lot. So, so what we do is learning by failure and learning by defeat. But if we try to confront them with the last five years, it's already gone. So the memory of the last five years is already away. I wasn't obviously involved in designing the Biden, COVID and the left panel. But I think it seemed like when the participants in the panel kind of took up the Biden, COVID, comma, COVID, comma, the left formulation, they read that as it's time to criticize the Biden administration's COVID policies. And I kind of suspect that that may not have been the intention in designing that panel. And I certainly think that, you know, the way in which Biden kind of represents the failed potential or the failure of the last five, six, seven years or whatever, makes him in particular into a pretty fraught topic for all of the people who are on that panel. And that's maybe why they don't see Biden and COVID as like related to their own failure. They don't see them as similar. Or by uh, being uh, offended by the notion of failure. Yeah as very openly Anthony Montero was at this panel, you know. He was very offended by the notion that generations, that also his generation, maybe, maybe, we are not, uh, I think, uh, ready to make that judgment call, maybe. Uh, so I'll be, I formulate it in this way, that maybe whole generations have wasted their life their, in their political activity. And it's not just a hard pill to swallow, it's also a very unpopular thing to say or think. You know, uh, Rosa Luxemburg wasn't very popular <laughs> during the First World War saying, okay, it seems like 40 years of organizing has paid off for nothing except uh, that the German Empire has now a much better war machine because the workers are much more willing to die uh, when they die for their trade unions than just for the Kaiser. On the panel on Biden, COVID and left, tellingly, it was mostly about the 1930s and today. That is not a coincidence. We all know the uh, constant invocation of the New Deal, of FDR, the Green New Deal and so on and so forth. But also on the other panels, it was not just the 1930s, but also the 1960s, of course, the Black Freedom Movement for Anthony Montero. Uh, so, yeah, 30s and 60s as failures, maybe, you know. On the bit of, like, fail, like allergy to failure, there's even that, like, line from Benjamin Balthazar where he's like, well, I don't like the word failure or whatever. The interesting thing with uh, Benjamin Balthazar's uh, contributions on that panel was that he offered some soft uh, criticism in his opening remarks about the CPUSA and so forth. 
and later, very quickly, I think already in the response section, or maybe sometime later, he already uh, very quickly uh, backpedaled, saying, well, I know it's hard, everyone is trying their best, and so on and so forth. Yes, that's true, um, but it really doesn't help uh, with the task of, you know, learning from anything. There's this weird parallel with like this concept of failure that people claim they're like learning from because it happened. And since it happened, we learn from it, of course, like that's how you learn things because it happened. And I know about it, by the way. And uh, Studebaker's thing with like ancient Rome of like, well, we have to take like this whole pool of history and we're going to like pull what we want from it. And we're like learning things from just this positive accumulation of history. There's like kind of a similar like automatism that goes on of like, well, uh, what learning is, is there's like the entire past that we can just pull from like hyperlinks and then we're going to like assemble like uh, we're going to like reassemble the struggle anew or something like that. There's like kind of this weird like thing going on of like this concession to failure where that's sort of the solution for people. Well... The interesting thing, of course, uh, with uh, uh, Studebaker is also that his thinking uh, is very open. Uh, his uh, re references to whatever in all of human history has been thought about, you know. And so he's also very open uh, through his insight, so to speak, his main insight that this whole culture war thing on both sides is really worthless you know why not also run on republican tickets you know if it's needed why is it the democrats why not both you know why it's why is it the democrats then a funny bit of course was not a funny bit but also a very good moment was when he pushed back on uh Donald Parkinson's putting up the slogan of abolishing the Senate and Studebaker pushing back on that and saying it's about crushing the Midwest. So it's really not, you know, you believe uh, in your, you know, neo-McNair, right, neo-Kautskian idea that it's about radical democracy, but at the end you will only help the Democrats crush uh, the Midwest more, you know. Um, maybe just following on from this, I, I think that the convention managed to capture in, in this moment of history, the millennial left or leftists in this moment simultaneously feel they've suffered a series of defeats and that they have this kind of history that they can learn from, right? Which seems to be from like the Trump period. Right. So from like, what have we learned between 2016 and 2020? What mistakes did we make? How can we just like learn from those, those mistakes? But also this feeling that like they're starting anew. But there is this feeling that the struggle is continuing and it's only just it's only getting started. Donald Parkinson said, said something very much to that effect um, that actually um, now that we're here, we're just getting started. Right. Um, the, the millennial left doesn't have to have doesn't have to die with Bernie. Maybe Bernie is this um, fundamental um, break with the liberal left, maybe. Maybe it's like these ID poll, maybe it's like these neocons that were kind of 
you know, that fetters the Democratic Party. Maybe now that we're disillusioned with Bernie, we can make a clear break and start anew. And what I found interesting in one of the panels, I think it's this like leadership in the left panel, was something that um, Ephraim brought up. You know, he kind of poses the question of, at this point in the panel, they're talking a lot about like the party and whether or not a socialist party would be able to provide leadership for the working class. What would that even mean? And Ephraim's like, okay, if we kind of like slow down here, we have to consider the opportunity for leadership. And that really, we might feel that the opportunity is now, that the crisis is now, that we have to start building a party now, that we've actually missed, we've let this opportunity, which is much longer, fly past us. And that now we have to kind of sit and actually consider how we let the inertia of history kind of pass past us. I mean, what he's making reference to, maybe what's been haunting the conversation, is this idea of like post-neoliberalism. In the convention, there's this confusion whether or not we had like doubled down on neoliberalism. And the response should be to kind of like double down on bringing in the state. Whether neoliberalism has actually either come into crisis or um, has kind of outlived its welcome. And, you know, I think for in, in Platypus, we would posit the question that the crisis of neoliberalism kind of happened in the 2000s, kind of like 2000s, 2010s, with Occupy. And that really it was Trump and Brexit, the twin phenomena of Trump and Brexit, are actually the right wing taking leadership of the discontents caused by the crisis of neoliberalism. And nowhere actually else did I really see this idea coming up in the conference. Marxism and liberalism panel is like really interesting in that respect because I know the people that curated that panel did so they were kind of like a little bit teetering at the end because everyone on that panel was like kind of like a quote soft on Trump leftist but in a way it's like very interesting because a like you said like you don't see anyone throughout the entire convention like bring up Trump he's been like completely forgotten it's like it never happened but then there's the other thing where in the left generally you see this kind of like phenomenon where everyone else is like gonna in words is sort of like quote soft on Trump like there is the recent interview of like Noam Chomsky where he's like you know there is like one statesman who would stop the war in Ukraine and that's Donald J Trump but then in like the Q&A of that thing they just like he's like well but Trump's like a piece of shit and blah 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 um but it's interesting because even though it was it ended up just being curated that way, that purposely or not, like kind of captured part of the energy of the left right now, where if you were to bring Trump up, they'd be like, well, I guess like all politicians are just like sort of shitty. So why not Trump? But in the actual moment, like in 2016, people would be at your throat and ripping your heart out if you were like, just made that statement, like, why not Trump in comparison? <laughs> not just in 2016, the whole presidency, yeah. more or less, you know. And that's maybe, you know, saying that sentence already answers the question, you know, he's right now not in power. I guess maybe most leftists are sure that this moment has passed, that this was a sort of anomaly so i'm going to start wrapping up the the conversation actually so uh, thank you guys for coming on do you want to tell me like what projects you've got going on at the time did the convention inspire you or like what's happening with your life that we can kind of air at the moment that you'd like to promote we are planning to uh teachings under the title the russian revolution and its effects its immediate effects 
It's basically two teachings, one on the Russian Revolution, February and October, and 1905, of course, and one on the November Revolution in Germany, uh, which I will be doing. How about you, Clay? Any sign-offs? Sure, yeah, we're doing a few things in like Chicago. Next week, we're trying to have, what was the anti-war movement panel? I think that's what we're calling it right now to try to kind of like register the Iraq war, anti-war movement history with these like new calls for it's like we need like a new anti-war movement with Ukraine. And I think Ed, I think he's going to put on one or two Eugene Debs and like maybe like CPUSA teach-ins at like Northwestern. And how about you, Conrad? What's happening with you? Anything you want to plug? Platypus Portland is an extremely small venture, but we do have a reading group that some people go to and we do a coffee break every week that i attend and if you just happen to be in the portland area and want to get in touch with us uh our email address is platypuspdx1917 at gmail.com thanks so much for joining us and talking about the convention really appreciate it looking forward to all the teachings and panels and i'm looking forward to the next convention too i've resolved next year Instead of, you know, just renting a hotel room that's cheap, I will be staying in Trump Tower in Chicago. So uh, I hope to see you guys all, you know, at least if not in my suite, somewhere on like a similar floor. No, we should just have the convention at Trump Tower next year. <laughs> guys, we're playing into the stereotype. We can't do this. Production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Villaggi. Platypus is an international membership based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. <laughs>